Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger, and today's episode is about vexatious notifications. This is a complicated issue, and today we hope to continue an important conversation. We're calling today's podcast Vexatious Notifications, the who, what, why, and what can be done. Featuring on today's podcast, we have four guests representing different perspectives and from different communities. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Marie Bismarck. I'm an associate professor at the University of Melbourne and a psychiatry registrar. I'm Kate Griggs. I live in Tasmania. I'm a health consumer and I belong to APRA's community reference group. I'm Sarah Bird. I'm the manager of medical legal and advisory services with MDA National, which is one of the medical defence organisations. I'm Matthew Hardy. I'm the national director of notifications with APRA. It might be a good place to start with some definitions. Marie, can you kick us off? What is a vexatious notification? There are really two elements to a vexatious notification. The first element is that it's groundless, so there's no real foundation to the complaint. And the second part of a vexatious notification is that it's made with the intent of causing distress or harm to the health practitioner. It's also worth asking what a vexatious complaint is not. So just because a complaint is distressing or upsetting to the health practitioner, that doesn't mean that it's vexatious. And just because a complaints body or regulator decides not to take formal action, that doesn't necessarily mean that the complaint was vexatious either. Actually, so Marie, you use the words notification and complaint kind of interchangeably. Can you just define those for us? So notification is the term that's used in the APRA legislation. I tend to use the word complaint because that's the word that's more familiar to consumers and health practitioners. So I do sometimes use those terms interchangeably. Sarah, how does that sound to you as someone coming working for a medical defence organisation? Does that seem like a reasonable definition? Uh, Marie's outlined that motivational aspect of um, the definition of a vexatious complaint. I think you'll find for a lot of doctors, and I have no doubt the feedback that APRA receives is that doctors perceive a much larger proportion of complaints as being vexatious um, because they're looking at it from their own personal experience, understandably. Um, so in, no one likes getting a complaint and really it's a matter of common sense that doctors will be distressed um, and upset when they receive any form of complaint against them. Um, and because more than 80% of the complaints that are managed by APRA where there is no further action. I think that again from a doctor's point of view um, gives them the sense that a lot of the complaints that are being made are not triggering any sort of regulatory action against them and, and wonder again is that because they were vexatious in the first place. So do you think, Sarah, just to go on with that, do you think that the definition is, is really important or, or not? Well, I do think it's important in terms of this discussion because the definition that Marie has given is quite a narrow definition and I think if you're talking to a group of doctors, they're going to have a much broader definition of what they consider to be a vexatious complaint. Marie, you've done a bit of research on um, vexatious notifications. Can you tell us what that, what that research was? There were a lot of anecdotal concerns in Australia suggesting that vexatious complaints were common 
but little actual evidence about how frequently they occurred and the characteristics of those complaints. We were commissioned by APRA to conduct an independent literature review to review the evidence relating to vexatious complaints in Australia and internationally. What did the research show about the impact of vexatious notifications? So there's good evidence that any kind of complaint can be distressing for a health practitioner. Almost all of us go to work wanting to do a good job and it can be a very upsetting experience to receive a complaint. So that's true for any kind of complaint, whether it's vexatious or not. There's little evidence specifically on vexatious complaints. However, because of the nature of those complaints, it seems reasonable to think that they might cause more distress because the intent of the complaint is to cause harm or distress and there's no foundation to the complaint. The overwhelming finding from our research is that the much greater problem is that many people who suffer harm in the healthcare system don't make a complaint. The evidence would suggest that under-reporting of concerns is a much larger problem than over-reporting. Sarah, in your experience, do health practitioners believe there's a problem with vexatious notifications? Um, yes, so certainly using the definition, that broader definition, which is their experience of complaints, um, I think there is good evidence that doctors think that a lot of the complaints are vexatious. And as I say, it's borne out by the APRA data where 80% of the notifications, there isn't any further action, which I think leaves doctors with a sense of, well, you know, why was the complaint made in the first place? I think one of the challenges that you face is that, in my mind, there's a difference between a complaint or notification that requires some form of regulatory response, so relates to a doctor's knowledge, um, skills and judgement in the practice of medicine, and then it's a completely separate exercise often in terms of actually a complaint resolution process. Um, and I think and it would be interesting to hear Kate's view on this. I think for a lot of um, notifiers, um, they might be going into that process with a view to trying to resolve their complaint. Um, whereas, of course, APRA, as we know, their role is to protect the public and is looking at it from a regulatory framework. I'll just start by saying it takes a lot for a person to build up the courage to make a complaint, um, and most people don't. Um, and also, the reason why they do it is because Generally, they've got a really high level of concern about what happened to them, and they often say they wouldn't want it to happen to other people. Um, so what they want is, I guess, assurance um, that the practice, whatever it was that happened, um, is not something that's going to happen again. I'd, I'd agree with Kate here that um, what we tend to see in the data, lots of the notifications or the concerns that we receive point to something other than best practice. Um, and it's important for people to know that, in fact, the standard that we have to hold practitioners to isn't best practice, it's reasonable practice. The number of notifications we receive every year absolutely is rising. So the long-term um, kind of trend shows that we receive about 9% more notifications each year compared to the previous. But in fact, for the last year's data, the increase was more like 14% compared to the previous year. So certainly notifications are on the rise. Um, the, the biggest increase that we see in the number of notifications we receive each year 
actually do come from patients, their carers, their friends or relatives or other members of the public who are drawing our attention to something, as Kate said, that is less than best practice. Um, what our data tends to show is that most of the notifications we receive from those individuals, so those carers, the patients themselves, their friends or relatives, is that they're dissatisfied with the standard of care that they've received. And, and I agree again that a lot of that stems from a failure to communicate appropriately um, or with an issue in relation to uh, what a patient expected um, versus what actually was received in practice. Um, I mean, we don't see really that the reason that people raise notifications with us is because they want to damage a practitioner's career. What we would um, tend to see from the data is that the main reason people, particularly patients, carers and members of the public, raise these concerns with us is because they want uh, the practitioner to understand their concern and to ensure that the issue won't be encountered again by another patient. Um, but you can see, I guess, from the definition that uh, that was raised in the introduction by Marie, that um, it, it's really difficult for us at first look to distinguish a concern that actually is a genuine concern from something that's probably um, uh, with the intent of damaging a person's career and without any basis for it to be made. And quite often, the only way then that we can actually delve into um, whether or not something is or isn't vexatious is to investigate it. Um, and, and I mean that in itself causes um, uh, distress for practitioners because we understand that practitioners do attach being investigated by the regulator with a significant amount of stress. I suppose that sort of takes us to this question of um, where, do, where do vexatious notifications come from? And I wonder, uh, Murray, if there's anything that you found in the research about, that you can tell us about what was the common source of vexatious notifications? What the evidence would suggest is that where a complaint is truly vexatious in that it's both groundless and the intent is to cause harm, it's often a situation where there has been a pre-existing relationship between the two parties so, for example, I'm aware of some situations where complaints or notifications to APRA have been used as part of a pattern of intimate partner violence, where there has been domestic violence or abuse, and the perpetrator of that abuse has made a complaint to APRA about their partner who is a health practitioner um, as part of a pattern of ongoing behaviour intended to cause harm or distress. There are also suggestions that there have been some situations where health practitioners, that there has been a breakdown in the relationship between two health practitioners who have previously worked together and then complaints or notifications to APRA have then been used as part of that dispute between the two practitioners. The vast majority of the notifications we receive each year, and in fact around 80% of the notifications we receive come from um, patients, carers or relatives of those patients or other members of the public. Does APRA have a way of, um, of trying to assess whether something is vexatious straight away? That's really difficult terrain. Um, notifications that come from practitioners uh, which are vexatious are probably easier for us to identify. Um, in our screening process though, it doesn't matter whether the notification came from a patient or from another practitioner, 
there's several questions that we would ask ourselves um, uh, in light of the study from the University of Melbourne that Marie's been speaking about. So we would look for whether or not there's any evidence of an apparent or reported conflict between the parties. We'd ask whether it was lodged, the notification, during the course of legal proceedings. We'd look at whether there was any evidence of a pre-existing relationship between the notifier and the practitioner that's actually broken down. Um, we'd take a look at whether there's any evidence of a personal or professional um, competitiveness, uh, so um, professional competition in that space. And we'd also look at whether there's been any examples of unreasonable complainant conduct. And um, the, the report that Marie's been talking about um, outlines some of the features of that conduct, so where the behaviour or the communication styles or the types of demands or language that's being used by the notifier puts us on notice that there may be a concern about the vexatious nature of a complaint. And if so, we would therefore um, consider taking no further action in relation to the complaint or rapidly trying to verify from an independent source what's actually gone on so that we can um, deal with the notification as quickly as possible. There is some evidence from the UK which suggests that um, complaints which are perceived by doctors to be vexatious probably have a greater negative impact on um, doctors' wellbeing. Some of the work that Tom Bourne and his colleagues have done in the UK have shown that. Um, Marie's comments, uh, those categories of um, vexatious complaints um, are correct. We had a terrible complaint the other week which involved a practitioner's partner who'd made a complaint to APRA in the context of a family court dispute um, and it was quite obvious that the intent in making this complaint was to try and improve his position in terms of obtaining custody of the child. Now I think as Matt says those sort of complaints probably are fairly easy for APRA to identify the motivation and intent there. The ones involving colleagues may be a situation where the colleagues are in competition, so perhaps in areas of cosmetic medicine um, or even skin cancer medicine where they're competing for a group of, of patients or sometimes there's been, as Marie says, a, a, a breakdown in a relationship and a great antipathy between um, two colleagues where there's some sort of um, psychopathology with the um, with the notifier or complainant um, and this is that very persistent um, conduct in making complaints, voluminous amounts of information um, and that you know, recognised unreasonable um, complainant conduct, um, which again um, I think requires early recognition and a different way of, of managing the situation. I absolutely agree with that and I have seen a number of situations where a person has, for example, a paranoid delusional disorder, they believe um, that colleagues and regulatory agencies are out to get them and as part of that paranoia they may either be lodging complaints about people or if they are a health practitioner they may believe that complaints about them are part of this pattern of persecution and in that case um, some of those people really need some mental health support. The complaints are not necessarily being made with the intent to harm it's reflecting a delusional fear or belief that the person is subject to persecution. 
So my experience of dealing with a range of, you know, members of the public who access health services, there's this issue that we're talking about of a vexatious complaint and then what the others are explaining of a vexatious complainant. I tend to call them the regulars. They tend to do sit on the margins of the community and can be quite vulnerable people and there is a lot of mess in what comes out of their mouth and what they're seeking. Um... But geez, sometimes it, there are there are things that they say that are true and concerning as well, and that's really difficult to um, see the whole picture and and pick out if there are bits that you know. Um, sometimes, like uh, there's a person I know who used to literally sat, had tin foil on the windows um, and thought the AFP was after them. Um, and very, you know, some wild accusations, but then some really basic um, stories as well that were really concerning about their ability to access a health service or how they were denied denied a health service. Um, so that's, yeah, I agree that there's another way of handling that, but I, I'm also aware that these are some of the most vulnerable people in our community and we cannot close the door to them. If we assume that patients and um, families are not, um, the, ma- the majority of them are not sort of born vexatious but become that way, are there things that in your experience, Kate, um, practitioners might do to, to prevent these kinds of um, complaints escalating? Often it's about the ability to provide an environment in which the person can express their concerns up front. Um, a lot of people walk in and out of a health practitioner's office and don't feel comfortable raising concerns or they might blow off the lid later. Um, so it's about creating that environment. Um, a two-way communication environment is so important. The other thing I think is really important if we're talking about um, people who have a, patients who may have a lot going on in their life is it's also important sometimes um, the health practitioner or the person that making the complaint to might be able to link them in with other appropriate social services um, and sometimes that's a better place. They need some help problem solving um, and those other social services or a community service might be a better and right place for that person to have a relationship with a helper and, and, and help them find their way through the mess. I think most people um, come to us and raise a notification with us about a practitioner because they have experienced something that's suboptimal. Um, they've experienced uh, care from a practitioner that wasn't ideal, um, they feel that their views in relation to that care hasn't been um, taken into consideration by a practitioner. There are lots of reasons and most of the motivation that I would see in notifications relate to people actually trying to improve health service for future patients. So I'd agree wholeheartedly with Kate and say you know, most people's motivation for bringing these complaints to us is actually not because they're setting out um, to damage a practitioner. They are actually setting out to improve the standard of care that's provided to them and future patients um, from a health service or from a health practitioner directly. There is another situation that, um, that could allude to the idea of vexatious complaint is that Sometimes a practitioner's involvement with a patient or a carer could be very small, but the actual journey that that patient is going through 
is very big in that there may be very tragic out, um, outcomes. Maybe somebody died, maybe there's a terrible illness, um, terrible loss in their lives. And in that process of grief, those people are trying to look back and see and identify what went wrong. The practitioner, even though their involvement could be very small, they're still part of that journey. And that's a very difficult situation in many ways for, for the person who is in grief um, and for the practitioner who, who may have only had a small involvement in that story um, about how to deal with the complaint of that sort. Because when you look at any complaint, it is the perception of each person's recollection of what happened in those events and we all sort of make narratives to try and explain what's happened. And when you look at a lot of complaints, particularly where it is about issues such as communication, where there isn't medical documentation or medical records which can really establish whether one recollection is the correct recollection or another one, um, that people's recollection you know, are on that sort of spectrum and sometimes in a complaint it's very close to the patient's recollection of what's happened and then on other occasions it's very close to the doctor's recollection of the events. I think it's so important to try and understand someone's motivation for complaint and also the role of the regulator. The fact that a regulator takes no further action absolutely does not mean that the complaint was unfounded. There may have been a misunderstanding, there may have been a very legitimate concern which has already been addressed by the practitioner. The role of APRA is to protect the public and there are many complaints where there's no need for formal conditions or suspension or removal of someone's registration where the initial complaint was still made based on very real and valid concerns which have been addressed during the investigation process. In relation to mental illness, I want to echo the comments that were made earlier. Just because a patient has a mental illness, it doesn't mean that any complaints they make are vexatious. We do know that there are real concerns about the quality of mental health care provided in Australia and somebody with a very serious psychiatric illness can still experience poor care and should have the same right as anyone else to have their complaint looked at. Do you see a difference in the way practitioners behave when they believe a notification is vexatious? The practitioners will experience a range of emotions when they receive a complaint or a notification. Um, but I think if it's a complaint which is perceived by the doctor as being vexatious, the overwhelming um, emotion will be one of, of, of anger and distress. As a professional indemnity provider, how do you advise um, practitioners to respond when there's a concern that a, vex that a notification might be um, vexatious in nature? I often say to doctors um, to write two responses to me, um, to say what they really feel and, and what they want to say in response and then to write what they need to say in response to it. And it comes back to that issue, ultimately this is a complaint and um, if it's not something which has any um, 
a reflection on their knowledge, skills or judgement, there's still a complaint to be resolved. Um, and if there is a, a, you know, some way in which they can assist in, in resolving the notifier's concerns, um, then I think they should be part of it. But often doctors need to get that sort of emotional reaction out of the way first. So that's my two responses, you know, to really express their distress, anger, upset and so forth and then step back and as Marie was saying, try and understand and think about well what was the motivation of the person who's made this notification and is there a way in which I can in some way resolve those concerns. Matt, you referred to a process that, um, that opera goes through in trying to, to assess whether or not something is vexatious. Do you manage those differently? I, I think... Um, health practitioners would be interested to know that? We would say that the only way really to test whether the notification is true is by undertaking an investigation. But quite um, in, in most of those cases, we would be trying to obtain something independent as quickly as we could to be able to resolve um, that question about whether there's substance to the complaint. You want to understand the true nature of it. At the same time, you don't want to have to put a practitioner through an investigation when we know that has a really significant impact on them. Is that right? That's correct. Um, I mean, all of the evidence that we've gathered and the literature shows just how um, distressing and stressful uh, being the subject of an open complaint can be for practitioners. Um, so our intention always is to resolve a complaint with as little um, input as, as possible or with, with as little uh, impact as possible. Um, by gathering the information that we need um, as quickly as possible. I think it's really important for APRA to have effective triage processes up front so that you take a close and thoughtful look at a complaint soon after it's received rather than letting a process drag on for 18 months before you figure out that there's no substance to the complaint. The research also suggests that past behaviour is a good predictor of future behaviour. I think it's so important for any complaint to be considered in context. So for example, I've seen a situation where a male practitioner received a complaint of sexual misconduct that they had inappropriately touched a female patient. The doctor was adamant that this was a vexatious complaint and that it was unfounded. But when you looked at their history, five separate women who did not know each other had made very similar complaints about sexual misconduct by that practitioner. So in that situation, I think it's highly unlikely that six women have independently made false accusations against a practitioner. So I think that that context is really important. Our research also suggests that among the vexatious complainants, there are some features of their behaviour that they will often be writing letter after letter. They may be making demands or threats to the regulatory agency. They may be contacting multiple organisations, so there may be complaints to APRA and to the employer and to other bodies, and that they are not satisfied by the response from those agencies. I also think that as health practitioners, it's so important for us to support our colleagues. 
for very, very many practitioners, it can be a very lonely process being the subject of a complaint. And I think there's much more that we can do as a practitioner community to make sure that we're supporting and caring for our colleagues through this process, encouraging them to reflect on complaints that are received, to think about what can be learnt from them, and to really focus on what's best for patient care while also making sure that the practitioner feels well supported through that process. We definitely do see some vexatious complaints from both patients and from uh, colleagues of practitioners. Um, in terms of patients, we've seen complaints from patients in circumstances where a practitioner has validly complied with an obligation under a state or territory drug and poisons legislation, for example, to withhold prescription of a drug. Um, but we've had cases where the patient has made up an issue or at least has withheld really important details about their complaint in the hope that we'd take action um, that might be damaging to a practitioner's career. We've also had a number of cases where there are really clearly other acrimonious circumstances going on. So the breakdown of a relationship is a really classic example when one person has tried to damage an ex-partner um, using the notification process. The evidence tends to show that they're really incredibly rare, but we absolutely acknowledge that they happen and they can have an absolutely devastating effect um, if they're not caught and managed appropriately. Um, so one of the other um, types of complaints that we see is where the patient hasn't got what they wanted in the consultation. Um, one example would be where a patient is inappropriately seeking drugs of addiction from the doctor and the patient may use as a threat in trying to persuade the doctor to prescribe for them that they will be making a complaint to the medical board if they don't receive the prescription that they've requested. Um, and then there are other um, lesser examples where a patient perhaps has been seeking a sickness certificate that the doctor's not prepared to provide or other prescription for other medications such as antibiotics and so forth um, and are disappointed that they haven't received what they wanted. And it's that tension between the doctor's obligations to behave in a professional manner and in accordance with their peers um, versus um, you know, providing the patient with what they're looking for, so seeing the patient as a, um, as a consumer. We sometimes get uh, notifications made by other practitioners where there actually could be um, some competitive nature to the raising of the complaint, but in fact um, a practitioner is alerting us that the standard of care being provided by one of their colleagues is suboptimal. Um, they're incredibly difficult to navigate through and again that's where we would seek um, independent evidence from uh, a third party to distinguish between you know, what the complainant has raised and what a practitioner um, has alleged is vexatious to actually uh, understand whether there is a problem in the standard of care that that practitioner is providing. It's important to remember that just because a practitioner feels that a complaint was vexatious, it doesn't necessarily make it so. We know that for some of the poorly performing practitioners, one of the characteristics is that they lack insight into the harm that their behaviour is causing. Marie has touched upon the issue that the literature suggests that the best support um, that doctors can receive in this situation is from their colleagues. Um, and the other issue to mention is that it does take a long time um, for complaints to be or notifications to be resolved. And so 
remembering to continue to be in contact with your colleague um, because the process you know, doesn't finish within a week and so forth and you'll often find it can be hanging over a doctor's head for many, many months. I would have two recommendations. The first is that APRA and other complaints bodies continue the work they're doing to ensure early, timely assessment of complaints to reduce the amount of time that an open complaint is hanging over a practitioner's head and to reduce the amount of time that the complainant is left waiting for an outcome. I always think it's really important to look at every complaint in context. So often just from the facts of the complaint itself, it can be difficult to figure out what's going on. And it's so important for regulators to think about that practitioner's practice in a broader sense. So is this part of a pattern of complaints from several different patients or colleagues? Is this a one-off situation? What do we know about a potentially acrimonious relationship between the two parties? I think that the context is really the clue to understanding vexatious complaints. I'd agree with a lot of the comments that have been made and particularly echo, you know, uh, Marie's words there in terms of the efforts that we need to make to make sure that complaints are resolved as quickly as possible um, and that is in the interest of both practitioners and complainants and we'd agree with that. While you know vexatious notifications are not significant in number, they are incredibly significant when they occur and they can really impact a person's career. Um, I think for us it's probably unrealistic to expect that the number of notifications that we get each year will ever decrease, although that might be something that we'd like to see. Um, I think we need to be realistic that you know, in the age that we're in, we're in a digital age where providing rankings, providing ratings, feedback, complaints, concerns, they're all very common and they're all relatively easy um, uh, concepts for people to embrace and to um, make concern, raise concerns or make complaints and in fact they really are part of our everyday lives. I don't think health practice is any exception so consumers are going to have expectations about the care or treatment that they ought to receive. Where those expectations aren't met, just like in any industry, they're entitled to voice their dissatisfaction. Um, I'd say that practitioners and health services who employ them in this day and age really do have an obligation, no matter what the profession or which part of a profession someone might practice in, they need to make it easier for consumers to raise concerns directly with them or to their practice in the first instance. And certainly the literature indicates that practitioners and consumers are far better off trying to resolve um, conflict or concerns directly um, in the first instance. Um, we need consumers to understand that you know, raising a notification with the regulator isn't likely to trigger action in relation to an individual practitioner unless there's evidence that there's an ongoing risk to the public um, and that message sometimes doesn't always come through. And in terms specifically of this debate in relation to vexatious notifications, I think um, these types of conversations, getting these types of different perspectives are really important. Um, it's really important that practitioners understand that in, in our processes we are actively looking for um, cues that a notification might be vexatious and in those circumstances we deal with the notification differently and try to bring it to completion as quickly as possible. Kate, 
As we wrap up this conversation, I wonder if you want to um, make any comments from a patient perspective on this issue of, of vexatious notifications. Sitting back for a moment and looking at the bigger picture um, about ARPA and the boards and, and health practitioners, I think it's really important that we remember here in Australia, we believe that everybody in our community should be able to access safe, quality and humane healthcare, whether we're talking about your grandmother or um, a prisoner in a jail or a really annoying neighbour. This is something we believe everyone should be able to access. And um, the notifications scheme is really essential to that because when members of the public go to a health practitioner, we look up to them and we put our health in their hands. And when something goes wrong with our health, it's everything. Um, the impact on a person's life is huge. Um, so it's really, and most people aren't going to make a complaint um, if something's happened that's worried them. So I think it's really important that we keep the channels open. I acknowledge and understand the terrible impact a vexatious complaint can have on a, a health practitioner and their wellbeing and what the, all the work that they've done to get to the point that they are. But at the same time, we also must balance the public safety and the public interest. Um, and so I think it's very important that we be um, reasonable and proportionate in how we decide to respond to this problem, this um, public policy problem of vexatious complaints and we have to do it in a way that is most effective and efficient um, while also making sure we don't close down those channels of um, notification from the public to the regulatory bodies. Well, thanks for joining us today on um, this really interesting podcast about vexatious notifications. I want to um, thank again our guests, Marie Bismarck, Kate Griggs, Sarah Bird, and Matt Hardy.